Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for street fins. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. This is episode 15 and today I have Alex Patel with me again. So we were on break and now we're glad to be back to doing this podcast. So Alex, how was your winter break? Hey Rohan, I had a good break. I spent some time relaxing after a fast-paced quarter, celebrated my birthday, and of course worked on street fins. How was your break? Break was super relaxing for me as well. We actually recorded the interviews we'll be releasing in the upcoming episodes. And I also celebrated my birthday two days after you did on the 28th of December. So we were almost birthday twins. Yes, happy birthday. Well, it's time to get back into a work mentality. Definitely, I feel the same way. Break was long and relaxing, but I'm also ready to get back to school, though I still wish it wasn't online. So Alex, let's get into the topic of today's episode, simplifying investment banking. Why is this an important topic to take a look at? Well, Rohan, investment banks play an important role in finance. These special types of banks and the services they provide have been instrumental in building up and in some cases breaking down certain parts of our economy and financial system. Exactly. Investment banks are a key feature of not only the U.S. financial system, but the world's as well. And understanding what they do is very important for anyone looking to learn about finance, even if you aren't looking for a career in investment banking. If you can understand investment banking, then you'll definitely be able to understand a lot about the financial world. And like we did with our last topic, we'll be making this topic a two-part conversation. So this episode is part one, and we'll be releasing part two in two weeks from when this drops. Before we continue, I want to give a shout out to the person who guessed this topic's guest correctly, Max Lee. Max is a freshman at USC. So Max, great job on figuring out who it was and sending us your guest so quickly. We'll be teasing out the next guest at the end of part two. But this part one episode will go into the basics of investment banking, the history of investment banks, the difference between buy side and sell side, and much more. Our guest was the former vice chairman of Goldman Sachs and has had a legendary career. Before we get into the episode, we just want to remind you that if you are learning from our episodes and want to keep supporting what we're doing, we'd be eternally grateful if you gave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Now, let's get to simplifying. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified, the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. Anyone who has learned finance has undoubtedly heard about investment banks. Investment banking. Investment banking. The investment banking business. Our guest today is Suzanne Nora Johnson, and she's the former vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. She's one of the most connected, well-respected experts in investment banking today. In fact, she was listed as one of the top 100 most powerful women in finance while she worked at Goldman Sachs. Her background and career are both so impressive that I think I'll just let her introduce herself. My name is Suzanne Nora Johnson. I think I'm joining you today because I served as vice chairman at Goldman Sachs for many years. When I left Goldman Sachs approximately over 10 years ago now, I spent a lot of time in a portfolio life, meaning I spent time investing on behalf of five families. I worked on a number of corporate boards. I worked in a number of philanthropic boards and kind of acting as an advisor to other places that needed help. So for example, there's something called community development banks that provide a very important function in the world. And so I spent time on that. And during COVID, I live in Los Angeles. And really, I usually was on the road coast to coast, probably two or three times a month. 
over the last 10 years. And since COVID, I've been in Southern California exclusively and doing all of my activities virtually. So I'm actually curious to know, how did you get interested in finance and investing and eventually get your career at Goldman Sachs? So when I was an undergraduate, I spent most of my undergraduate career at USC, but taking night classes. And during the day, I spent most of my time working with youth programs in the city to basically help the siblings of kids who were in gangs. And there were two particular gangs in central LA that were particularly problematic. And so there were lots of younger sisters and brothers. So the deal was that we would include the younger sisters and brothers in these programs if their older siblings basically stayed out of trouble. And it became very clear in working in that neighborhood, and it was a neighborhood called Pico Union, that obviously people needed social and civil rights, very importantly, to have a prayer of being on a level playing field. But it was very, very clear that if they didn't have economic rights and economic power, there was no way to advance their lives. So after USC, I went to law school because I thought the tools of law school would be quite important. But it became very obvious to me that knowing finance and knowing how to access capital was the way that you could make the biggest difference in improving the world. And how I ended up at Goldman Sachs was after I practiced law for a couple of years, I applied uh, to the World Bank. The World Bank has a program called the Young Professionals Program. And you had to be, I think, under 35 to apply for it. It was a two-year program based in Washington, D.C., but you basically did finance projects for emerging markets around the world. And I applied to that program, and they said, thanks, but we don't want any lawyers. We really do want you to have two years of hardcore finance. So I applied to three different investment banks. And I had three criterion. One was, were they ethical and did they have true North values? The second was, were they as smart and meritocratic as the law firms were? And the third was, did I think they would survive for two years? Because as you all know, there's many consolidations, meaning mergers and acquisitions, companies kind of going in and out of business. And so Goldman Sachs kind of became the top of the list given those three criteria. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for kind of giving us a little overview of your story. And it's certainly an interesting one and maybe not as traditional as other people in finance. I do want to get into a little bit about the nitty gritty of investment banking. So could you start by just explaining what is an investment bank and what is investment banking very broadly? Sure. And I think it's important to understand a little bit of the history. After the Great Depression in 1929, banks and investment banks were basically separated because during the Great Depression, banks could basically do anything. They could lend money, they could make risky investments, they could do all sorts of financial transactions. And part of the legislation that came out of the 20s depression was something called Glass-Steagall. And that really separated out the functions. And at that point, it was very clear that really all that commercial banks could do was lending of debt. Investment banks were the organizations 
that could make investments, they could trade in the markets, they could own stocks, they could own debt, they could own other securities. They were much riskier institutions. And after Glass-Steagall was passed, there were different sets of regulators, bank regulators for commercial banks and investment banks. And then later on, Glass-Steagall was repealed. And when it was repealed, basically commercial banks and investment banks became one and the same. So when I talk about investment banking today, I'm going to give you a sense of what investment banking looks like today because all of the major banks in the U.S., when you think of major money center banks, so for example, the Bank of America, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Citibank, they do the same things that the traditional investment banks, which included Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley do. And after the Great Recession in 2008, there was a very significant uproar that part of the reason the Great Recession and the crash of 2008 happened was because banks were allowed to do risky things. And again, at that point, when I say banks, I mean both investment banks and commercial banks. So when I talk about investment banking today, I'm going to talk about the whole portfolio of activities they do. If you look at that group, and then we can drill down on what some small investment banks might do that are different from that set of the majors. But why don't we talk about the majors first? And again, the majors are the traditional ones, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, and then the money center banks that survived the 2008 recession. So Suzanne is going to go through each of the main functions of investment banks, which can be thought of as buckets of activities. These activities are providing capital, sales and trading, asset management, and research. Here's what investment banks do when they provide capital. The first set of activities is they provide capital. And by capital, I mean both equity, where someone invests money in a company, hoping that they will get a return on that money, but having no guarantee because it's a kind of risk investment, or they provide capital through lending. And in lending, they have a guaranteed return called interest, where they're charging kind of an interest rate and trying to earn money that way. So that primary function of providing capital is provided to companies, it's provided to governments, it's provided to civil society. By civil society, I mean other organizations that might need capital, and it's provided to individuals. So the provision of capital is one of the most important societal functions they play. Next, Suzanne gets into the sales and trading function of investment banks. A second broad function I would describe as sales and trading and basically making markets. And this is something that's very hard for people to understand. Most people understand when a company goes public. So for example, when Apple went public or when Amazon went public, they did something called an IPO. And that's where you're selling an equity investment to the public in that company. And it's very easy to understand, okay, I sell shares, but in order for there to have faith over the long term that that's an investment worth investing in, you have to believe there's a market because I'm not going to own a share of anything publicly if I don't think 
at some point, at some price, someone will buy it from me. So the primary market is the function of selling the shares to the public. But then someone's got to sell and trade those shares among themselves. And so that secondary trading of shares is between investment banks and between other types of institutional investors and individuals who then buy those securities in the secondary market. And you might think about the house your parents or you may own one day. There's a market, but it's relatively limited, meaning it's not completely transparent what's for sale all the time. And it's certainly not transparent, although it's gotten better of understanding how things trade in the secondary market. In the securities markets, particularly the equity market, it's posted where things trade. So that's another kind of important function. Next, Suzanne gets into the asset management function of investment banks. Another function is what I'll call asset management. So both institutions and individuals need to be able to put their money to work. And so they may put it in an investment bank in a deposit. And remember, that was something only banks used to do, but now all these combined commercial and investment banks basically take people's money on deposit. But when interest rates are very, very low, like they are now, both in the United States and around a lot of Europe and in Japan, if you put a money for deposits, you earn hardly anything. And if you get inflation in a market and there's no interest rate or it's very low interest rate, your money basically gets eaten. So these asset management functions will look at other assets to invest in. So they may invest in public stocks. They might invest in public debt. They might invest in real estate. They might invest in oil and gas. Or they might invest in private equity. Or they might invest in venture capital. But the investment bank's wealth management division is acting as a fiduciary or a steward or a custodian to help investors earn a return on their money. And a very important function of the investment bank when it's got an asset management division is understanding what is a particular investor's goal. So if the investor is someone like a university endowment, the university endowment's time frame is forever. So they can afford to have very mixed assets and they can and they can invest on a very long time frame. If the customer is a 65-year-old couple who doesn't have a long time frame, the assets need to be much less risky and they have to be convertible into cash. Uh, in a relatively short time frame. So the reward and risk mix tends to be very different. Finally, Suzanne talks about the research functions of investment banks. Now, there's other functions inside investment banks that help both the primary capital raising 
and help sales and trading and help asset management. And those tend to be research functions. So in most of the large investment banks, there'll be economic research. So that's researching everything about economies around the world. There'll be commodities research. So there'll be research on the major commodities around the world that trade. So including oil or gold or coffee, all those things are trading and someone's got to be doing analysis on them. And then they will do research on particular companies so that they have a really good perspective on the information that is out there. And it used to be under the law that you didn't have to have transparency in the research. And so people could get very kind of inside information from talking to companies. That's illegal. And now basically research takes kind of the information that they can get legally and tries to kind of synthesize it and curate it so that people can understand it. Because I'm sure that all of us see there's way too much information out in the marketplace. It's very hard for people to figure out what's true and what's not true. And sometimes people make decisions based on political perspective or their own biases. So trying to find factual market research becomes even more important, both research that's got integrity to it, but also research that is objective and independent and doesn't have a bias. That was incredibly comprehensive. I think we covered the different functions of an investment bank. But I do want to unpack something you talked about earlier, which was, I guess you were differentiating between commercial banks and maybe pure investment banks. And so say maybe a a pure investment bank like Goldman Sachs, well, maybe that might be changing because I see they're expanding with Marcus and to kind of consumer segments. And compare that with, with a bank like JP Morgan that has both a retail side and an investment banking arm. What is the difference between these? Are they serving different consumer segments? You know, is there a lot of differentiation between these two types of banks? I think the myth in the marketplace is that there's a difference in, for an example, a JP Morgan and a Goldman Sachs. They serve the same places. There's a whole category of what we'll call boutique investment banks that include everyone from a Lazard Frere to Varela Weinberg, to Evercore, to Centerview, that are really what people would think of now as traditional investment banks. And one of the most important functions they provide, that the majors provide as well, but the boutiques tend to specialize either in pure advisory services or in special verticals of industry. So, for example, a place like Lazard, that's a more traditional investment bank, it has a very big asset management arm, but most of its investment banking business is advising corporations. And they are advising corporations on what they should strategically do. So what do I mean by that? Companies need to think about what do they have to buy to be more competitive? What do they have to sell that's not producing a return that investors might think? They've got to help people decide, do we think they should just sell the whole business? 
And so the advisory services that were traditionally investment banks are done by big places like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. M&A is a very important part of their business. But post the 2008 crisis, while many investment banks kind of went away because they could no longer survive, given how tough the market became, a lot of other ones started up. So Lazard survived kind of pre and post financial crisis, but there were a whole lot of other ones that started because people wanted, when I say people, companies wanted pure play, just businesses that did nothing but kind of give them advice. And that advice might've been given by consultants. So places like McKinsey or BCG or Bain, but Often companies want the advice from finance professionals because they believe that the finance professionals will know what shareholders want. And if you're an investment bank that's having lots of conversations with lots of businesses, you have a very good perspective on who might want to buy you, who might want to sell to you. So for a number of years, I ran the healthcare business at Goldman Sachs globally. And we would spend a lot of time talking, for example, to pharmaceutical companies around the world so we could understand what products did they need to continue to build and who would have those products. So the biotechnology industry really came of age in the last 30 years. And so if you think about biotech companies, they're just really small pharmaceutical companies in the sense that they're just little companies that are doing all the basic research. And so if I'm a company, either a small company or a large company, I want to have advice on what else is out in the marketplace that might help my company be better. And if I'm a large pharmaceutical company, I can hire whatever investment bank I want. I can hire a big team inside. I can hire consultants. If I'm a small or medium-sized life science or biotech company, I might not have enough money to invest in having a lot of people inside my company who are doing nothing but looking at the market. And so I want to use an investment bank to help me do that. And traditionally, many investment banks who provided consulting services didn't charge anything for the service unless there was a transaction where if you were going to a consulting firm, the consulting firms were charging you fees for just talking to them. So a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises liked going to investment banks because you could get services at a much more reasonable rate. Okay, yeah, it's, it's really interesting how different sized banks serve different segments of the market. Now, I do have a question about competition within the investment banking field and how that works. So when there is, say, a sell-side mandate or another product offering, how are banks competing with each other? And how are some of the ways they're trying to vie for business? Yeah, and it, and it really depends on what the business is. For example, in large companies, large companies might say, we have to maintain multiple relationships with multiple banks because we always want to make sure we have access to lines of credit 
or banking debt that we may need in an emergency. So some banks will compete on the fact that they provide capital in a line of credit or in a revolving credit. And when we talk about commercial banks, remember their primary line of business historically was lending money, debt, to companies and people. And if I'm a large company, particularly after the 2008 crisis and other hiccups in the financial markets, they all always want to have access to liquidity. So it will not be unusual in certain circumstances for companies to say, you can't compete for this equity piece of business or for this merger project where we want to sell a line of business unless you provide a line of credit or you provide a revolving credit. There'll be other pieces of business where investment banks compete because they have the best relationship. The management teams trust that investment bank the most. They think they'll get an honest answer. They think they won't be double dealing. Because remember, the consulting practice or the M&A part, you're acting as a broker. And so that means that bankers are talking in the market very broadly to figure out what's going on. And if you're a company and you don't trust that the investment banker is going to protect your interest, then you're not going to hire them. And then lastly, obviously, it's a very competitive market. So even if I have a great relationship, even if they provide a line of credit, I might just say, I don't want to pay anything for this piece of business. And there'll be certain companies that are so prestigious or are so important because they're going to do lots of transactions that banks might cut their fees very dramatically. So it's all those things. It's relationship, it's expertise, it's fees, and it's what other services does a client actually need. You give a pretty comprehensive overview of how investment banks compete, sort of the basic functions of investment banks. Alex just mentioned the word sell side in his question to you, but really no conversation about investment banking would be complete without differentiating and defining what buy side and sell side are. So could you go ahead and sort of define what those two mean? Sure. It's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it, Rohan, because I think most people don't know what it means and it's really changed its meaning. So historically, investment banks were always on the sell side, meaning they were selling to investors some kind of investment opportunity. And so if I was an investment bank doing an IPO of Microsoft or of Apple, I was selling the shares to the public, which means either retail investors like all of us on the phone, or it was institutional investors, big insurance companies, or other types of investors that would be buying product. So that was sell side in the traditional sense. The buy side in the traditional sense was those institutions who were buying product from the investment bank. So you probably have all heard of Fidelity. You may have heard of Vanguard, Schwab, T. Rowe Price, Capital. Those are all buy side investors, meaning they're buying product 
from what's been sold from the investment banks. And there traditionally were parallel organizations. So if I was selling Amazon stock on behalf of Amazon, I would have a sell-side research analyst who knew a lot about that company and that industry. And they had to be completely transparent with all their research, everything about them, what else they invested in. Who I am selling to, so use the example of me selling to T. Rowe Price. T. Rowe Price on the buy side also has a research analyst, but it's a buy side research analyst only serving T. Rowe Price. So none of their research is public and they're basically just providing their analysis to the buy side. And so again, very different skills in a traditional sense. Most large investment banks, including Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, they have big asset management divisions. Those big asset management divisions are the buy side. So for example, if I'm JP Morgan asset management and Goldman Sachs is selling an Amazon deal, JP Morgan, the investment bank, which has an asset management division, is buying from the sell side that particular offering. But the reality is that they are now both sell side and buy side inside the large organization. And if I'm a competitor specialty niche bank, I might say, you know what? You don't want someone who's on the buy and sell side. Even though they're totally separated, you may say, I want someone who's only focused on selling me. There'll be other clients who say, I like the idea of having a big bank who understands the sell side, so the process for selling securities and who the investors are. But I like the idea that there's buy side expertise and understanding in depth of the opportunities. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people really think that buy side is made up of the hedge funds, of the asset managers, of the mutual funds, pretty much just asset management. But then they think of IB as just solely sell side, but it's evolved to the point where, as you said, investment banks have these huge asset management divisions inside. So now they're this combination of sell side and buy side. And then as you mentioned before, banks like Centerview, they're kind of more on the pure sell side of things. I'm curious to know, like, if I were to put up an example, let's say that you know JP Morgan has this really nice deal that you know their deal making side is trying to create, and they have the asset management within the buy side of JP Morgan. Could they set it up so that they create this opportunity and then their own asset management buys into that opportunity? But because it's JP Morgan as a whole that's creating this opportunity and then also buying it, is there some sort of potential for like a mismatch of incentives that profits to JP Morgan at the expense of other buy-ins? So that's a great question. And there are a couple. So in the public market, there are very strict laws and regulations about having firewalls between different divisions. So there's even laws that would say you can't even go on the same floor. So even if you're in the same company, 
you might not be able to even get on the floor of the buy side without following certain rules. And if you don't follow those rules, no other investor on the buy side is ever going to trust you or want to deal with you if they thought a JP Morgan sell-side securities offering was only benefiting the JP Morgan side. But if you think about the private opportunities, so for example, let's say Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs has very important buy-side clients that happen to be private equity or happen to be hedge funds. Some of those organizations may want to look for investors in their own funds. So they may come to one of the investment banks and say, we want you to go to your asset management division and see if you can find investors for our fund. So use a simple example. What about an oil and gas private equity fund? So they may say, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, we're willing to give you this opportunity to sell our fund to your asset management clients. So that will be one transaction. If they do a good job, there's nothing that prevents that private equity firm from then coming back to those organizations and saying, okay, you know that fund we did with you five years ago? We want to sell some of the companies out of the fund. And we want to consider you as one of the banks to do the sell-side assignment because you did such a good job in helping us find investors. So they're quite intermingled and there's a lot of laws and regulations which try to guarantee proper behavior and proper incentives. But most of the laws and regulations have been much more on the sell side than they have been on the buy side. So one of the things that you'll often hear bandied about in podcasts or in the press is that hedge funds and particularly private equity funds have much less regulation. And because they're private organizations have a lot more freedom to do things that if you were on the sell side would be more challenging. Now, after the 08 financial crisis, the government became much more strict on much of the more traditional asset managers uh, because there really were inappropriate behavior. I think you'll continue to see this be an area of regulators because regulators are usually think about protecting investors, but sometimes investors become so powerful that they may distort the market as well. Hey everyone, that was the end of part one of our two-part interview with Suzanne Nora Johnson on simplifying investment banking. We'll be releasing part two of our interview in about two weeks from when this releases. But the first half of the conversation was absolutely incredible. Alex, what were some of the key takeaways from this first part? I think one takeaway is that investment banking provides a lot of different services in the financial sector. From providing a steady source of financing to research on economies, they engage in a wide variety of activities that serve companies and individuals. However, the key functions of an investment bank are providing capital, asset management, sales and trading, and research. Yeah, and investment banks differentiate and gain their competitive advantage mainly through building relationships, keeping competitive fees, having more expertise, and successfully providing their services to companies and people. 
Exactly. And another takeaway is in how investment banking is no longer just the sell side. Historically, investment banks were just sell side, but with the growth of their own asset management divisions, they've also become buy side as well. So now investment banks are just a combination of the two. And adding asset management to their functions provides another track on which to compete. Agreed. Well, Alex, that wraps up our part one conversation and takeaways. What can we expect from part two? We'll be talking more about the specifics of things like IPOs and SPACs, careers in the industry, Suzanne's perspective on the future of finance, investment banking, and tech, and much more. Part two will be dropping on February 15th, which is two weeks from when this comes out. We'll talk to you all then. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to Suzanne Nora Johnson for her insights today. I hope you understand the topic of investment banking in a more simplified way. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the Streetfins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.